Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio.
Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you all for tuning in. This is T. Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a Reiki master and certified sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion that's already happening online. We do keep an eye on the chat room, so if you have a question, post it, and we'll do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go and can't continue to listen online, call us directly by dialing 347-202-0227, and that way you can listen via phone, or please be sure to use your Bluetooth if you are driving about. We now know through the latest advances in neuroscience that our innate capacities for resilience, the capacities to bounce back from terrible news, to find our footing again when we're thrown way off center, well, they mature or derail in the brain depending upon our conditioning. Whether we tend to bounce back or stay thrown depends on patterns of response we learn over time, patterns that become fixed, not just into our behavioral repertoire, but that deeply encode into our neural circuitry from an early age. And what has become clear only in recent years is how these same neural circuits can later be rewired for better coping and greater calm. My guest tonight is Linda Graham. And with a powerful combination of neuroscience, traditional therapy, and Buddhist mindfulness practice, Linda lays out in clear exercises and relatable examples the process of rewiring our brains and recovering our resilience. Now, Linda is a clinical therapist trained in a variety of approaches, a mindfulness teacher, and an expert on the neuroscience of human relationships, and she trains other clinicians in applying neuroscience in their work. Thank you so much for taking time out to be here with us, Linda. How are you being this evening? I'm doing fine. Thank you. And I want to comment on the song about thank you that introduced the show. Because research into gratitude practice was one of the earliest evidences that we had that we can build resilience through cultivating positive emotions like gratitude. And so when we have a daily gratitude practice, we find ourselves more calm, less stressed, more open to new ideas, new possibilities. We're more able to connect with people, have a sense of fulfillment. And the gratitude studies were what helped launch the entire positive psychology movement, which helps us learn the tools and techniques and exercises that specifically will rewire our brain for more resilience. So thank you. Well, thank you for commenting on that because a lot of people don't really listen to the song, and I listen to this song every single day. Mm -hmm. And it's not all that long. It's 3 minutes and 41 seconds. There's another song that I listen to called Grateful by... um, Oh, Simon Garfunkel, which one? I think it's Garfunkel. And that song is probably about almost five minutes long. Mm-hmm. And I listen to that every day as well. And they're beautiful songs because they change, they shift everything. So, yes, that is exactly why it's the introduction song for the show, and I really appreciate you noticing it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there is so much in your book. It is filled with all this great information and this wisdom and your compassion. And it's all backed up by science, as you just so eloquently put with, with thank you and that, that whole study and the process. And your book is so practical. It, it comes across as a guidebook for healthy living that really will help anybody with not just, you know, those great big things, but everyday challenges as well. 
So if you don't mind, could you tell us what got you so interested in resilience? Well, what got me interested in resilience was the neuroscience, actually. I began studying the neuroscience about 10 years ago because as a therapist helping people strengthen a sense of self and as a mindfulness practitioner where we learn to let go of the sense of self, I had to reconcile those two different paradigms. And neuroscience was the bridge to do that because as we learn how our brain functions and how as we learn how we can rewire the patterns and actually strengthen the functioning of the brain itself, we're learning that practices from mindfulness and practices in an empathic relationship such as therapy are two of the most powerful agents of brain change that we have. And that was what reconciled it for me, that when we use what's called the self-referencing network in the brain, which was how we pull together our sense of identity and roles and beliefs and coping. And then we also have a, a, a network in the brain that allows us to defocus and go into a more spacious reverie kind of state. We need both of those states of our mind functioning to be both creative and productive. And the neuroscience is showing us how we use our mindfulness, how we use our interactions with other people to strengthen the parts of the brain that we need for resilience. I've called the prefrontal cortex, which is the the most evolved part of the human brain. It's the latest to develop and mature. It doesn't fully mature until we're about 25 years old. I call that the CEO of resilience because that part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, is what does the regulating the nervous system, quelling the fear response in the midbrain. It allows us to attune and empathize with ourselves and with other people. It leads to self-awareness and insight, and it leads to response flexibility, which is the fulcrum of resilience. So it's actually the neuroscience that got me interested in how we apply that to um, cope with the changes and the challenges of our lives more adaptively, more skillfully, more effectively. You know, it's interesting you should say the prefrontal cortex doesn't come into full being until you're about 25 years mm-hmm. old because so many times people will say, you know, oh, they're 18, they're 22, this is what they'll say. They'll still want to come. They're going to snap soon. Don't worry about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So certainly the prefrontal cortex starts developing early on in our earliest interactions with people and the power of those early patterns and early learning is one of the things that I try to emphasize in the book. We operate about 80% of the time on implicit memory out of automatic unconscious habit. And the rest of the time we're thinking and figuring things out and making conscious choices. But to understand how much of our behavior coping with life comes from patterns from our evolution, from our biology, from our culture, but also from the interactions with our caregivers, our parents early on, um, they're very, very powerful. People say, why do I do this even though I know better? So I'm trying to explain the brain science behind that. The good news is that when neuroscientists discovered and confirmed neuroplasticity just about 20 years ago, um, actually more like a decade ago, now we know that the brain can change its circuitry, change how it integrates the functioning of various structures lifelong. We actually get to have a choice as we choose experiences later on in our life that will rewire our brain in a more wholesome direction. So we actually get to choose. 
we're actually changing the neural pathways in our brain for, for a better life, for a more positive when we do that. Well, That's if we're geared to do that, yeah. Now, you state that neither mindfulness practice nor the tools of psychotherapy alone are enough to help a person become more resilient. Why not? Why independently are they not enough? Why do you need both? Well, we need both because they work together synergistically. Both mindfulness practice and the relational psychology practices have elements of reflection and they have elements of acceptance. The mindfulness tradition tends to emphasize awareness, but we know that we need acceptance and compassion as much as we need awareness. The psychology traditions can emphasize the relationship, the healing that happens in the relationship, but we still need to be conscious and make conscious choices. So I'm pulling tools from the paradigms of both to strengthen the functioning of the brain to be more resilient. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned that there are the five C's of coping, mm-hmm. and that's early on in your book where you talk about calm and clarity, connection, competence, and courage. And that just makes so much sense because you can't, if you're not in any of, if you don't do that, forget it. You can't get anywhere. Right. And now I've added compassion <clears throat> as a sixth C of coping. So there's actually a trajectory in our process of coping where we do have to come to calm. That means coming to a physiological equilibrium, a physiological state of calm in the body so that the higher brain can stay online and do the thinking it needs to do. Often compassion or self-compassion is the practice we need to come to that state of calm, to be able to say in a moment, ouch, this hurts. This is a Mm -hmm. moment of suffering. And when we come to that recognition, we come into clarity, oh, something's happening here. I need to calm and soothe myself so that I can deal. The clarity is what allows us to step back, not to be embedded by our, in our experience or hijacked by it, step back, reflect, shift our perspectives, notice what our options are, and choose among them wisely then we can come connected to our resources, and those may be inner resources within ourselves, but very often it's resources to other people or material resources or spiritual resources so that we're not alone. We actually have some oomph behind our efforts. That will lead to a sense of competence or mastery as we learn the skills and we learn over and over again what works and we learn over and over again, I am someone who can learn what works. And then that leads us to a sense of courage. Um, We have to learn how to do one scary thing a day or 15 scary things a day. And these practices of the five C's of coping bring us into that sense of courage. Oh, sure, I can do this. I've done it before. Now, there are people who I know will be asking this question, and it's coming up in my mind. They're not necessarily people who think they need psychotherapy for any reason, so they just practice the mindfulness part, and they're doing fine. So would they, I mean, can you just do one without the other and and change the neural pathways in your brain and change what it is that's happening so you can become, you know, very resilient? Um, One of the things that I'm very grateful for was Jack Cornfield, who's one of the leading teachers who brought mindfulness practice to the West, says in his book, Bringing the Dharma Home, that mindfulness is not enough to deal with trauma. 
that very often we need uh, a safe container in an empathic relationship with a therapist to be able to touch into trauma memories without being hijacked or derailed by them. And the psychotherapy, which has developed many techniques to deal with trauma, still needs to emphasize the reflective capacity to see that our story is a story, our personal story feels very real to us, but it is a construct that the mind has made to make sense of things to allow us to cope with the world. But the more we can step back from that story as a story or our traditional habits of coping as habits, the more freedom we have then to make different choices. So one of the things I do talk about in the book is, yes, we are all under stress, We all face difficult conditions and disappointments throughout our lives. When we can cope, we're not traumatized by any of that. But when our defenses to cope are overwhelmed, then we're going to be experiencing a trauma response. And the the memories of that event get compartmentalized away in the brain, and very often we completely forget about it, but they're still driving our behaviors. When we have a combination of a mindful reflection and a compassionate holding with another person, anything that is shareable is bearable, we actually get to heal the trauma memories that are often driving our behavior unconsciously. So that's why we need both. And if if a person were to read your book, like I read the book for the show, so mm-hmm. I'm looking at it differently than someone else who's reading it um, specifically to get something out of it, although I did get a lot out of it. it, it you know, I'm reading it purposely mm-hmm. to, to come up with questions. But if you read your book, I would think that just reading this and knowing what you learned from it, when or if, well, I might as well say when, something traumatic happens that is more difficult to bear than normal, it would give you the, you would remember somehow from reading this book, you would be able to say, okay, I need to go talk to a therapist now. Or talk to a friend. Right, but do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You'd, you'd talk to somebody because the book gives you that. It, it, it would, instead of sitting there thinking, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I can come at that from several ways. One of the quotes that I have in the book from James Baldwin is something like, we must hold each other, otherwise the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. And I do talk in the book about when we are connected to people and we know we're connected to people and we can feel the resource of that, it even becomes a buffer against stress or trauma having such an impact on us. The researchers have found that the best protection we have against stress, trauma, and pathology is secure attachments or secure relationships with other people. And when we remember those relationships, it helps to be around someone. It helps to talk to someone. But when we even remember those relationships, we can activate the release of oxytocin, which is the hormone in the brain of safety and trust. It's called the hormone of calm and connect. And when we can release the oxytocin in our brains, we can calm down the response of the nervous system that is going into fight, flight, freeze and come into that equilibrium we need to be resilient. I think that um, when when people are in a moment of trauma and don't know what to do, that 
you know, if they're just the I don't know what to do at this point, all of the points that you're bringing up are, are real and they're in your book and you can, if someone read this, they would be, oh, okay, I know what to do, more so than if they just didn't read your book, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Your book really helps somebody, I think, to set themselves up, if you will. It almost puts an imprint in there that, oh, okay, I can talk to people and, and I'll feel better. I can, mm-hmm. you know, go to somebody to have that security. <laughs> and it, it teaches an awful lot. I mean, it's filled with so much information. You can't mm-hmm. help but know that down the road, or I would think it would just kick in, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, so can your brain do that? Can your brain intentionally pick up information and alter its functioning immediately? So if something came up, it would be like, okay, wait, I remember this and I can do this. So when you use the word imprint, which I think is a very useful word to use, um, any experience that we have will cause neurons in the brain to fire. That's how the brain works. When we have repeated experiences, you'll have repeated neural firings. The more the neurons fire together, they wire together. They strengthen the connections between them, the synaptic connections. That is how we create habits. It's how we create circuits. It's how we create pathways. So the more we do something or the more we experience something, the more it becomes an automatic habit in the brain to do it that way, which is why we can choose to cultivate positive experiences in relationship, positive emotions, a a powerful mindfulness practice, so that it becomes a new habit. There's a learning model that I offer in the book where we begin with unconscious incompetence, where we don't know how to do something, and we don't even know that we don't know. So that's sometimes called the ignorance is bliss phase, except it's often not blissful. Then there's a conscious incompetence where we know we don't know how to do something, and that's often referred to as the oh shit circuit. Then as we're learning skills and we're learning how to cope and we're learning how to rewire the brain, we come into conscious competence. Now we know and we know that we know, and that competence gives us a sense of confidence. The fourth phase, though, is unconscious competence, where we've done something so often And we know how to do it so well that we don't have to think about it anymore. It becomes the new automatic pattern. And one of the ways that I offer in the book, and I teach it everywhere I go, is an exercise called Hand on the Heart, which Mm. is one of the fastest ways we have to bring our body back into calm when we don't know what to do. You just put your hand on your heart. The warm touch of your hand on your heart will automatically start to activate the release of oxytocin. You breathe deeply into your heart center, and that activates the parasympathetic nervous system. You're helping your entire nervous system calm down. And then you breathe a sense of goodness or ease or trust into your heart center because we know that when you breathe a positive emotion into the heart center, it regulates the heart rate variability and brings it into a more coherent rhythm. And then, then, this all takes about 45 seconds, Uh then you remember feeling safe with someone where you feel loved and cherished. You simply call up a memory. You can call someone on the phone, but you can call up a memory of feeling safe and loved and cherished. And you just hold that image, and then you hold the feelings in your body. And you can calm your physiological state down in less than a minute. That allows you then to figure out what you're going to do in this situation or who you're going to call for help. So we do create these new habits. You notice the anxiety or the stress starting to rise in your body, and you put your hand on your heart, 
and you breathe and you pause and you come back into a resilient functioning. You know, it's funny because when I read that in the book, I, I thought, oh, wow, this is really neat because when I'm doing a Crystal Bowl concert after one of the sets that I play, I play for 20 minutes, and then I'll say, okay, we're going to do a meditation, and I tell them, put your hand on your heart, and we go through this meditation, and I tell them that, you know, it's going to take at least six minutes to do this, so don't worry about it, then I'll just start to play the bowls again. But that six minutes actually reduces their cortisol levels by 23%, and they're amazed because they mm-hmm. all feel so much calmer. And it, it is. It's because where you're, you know, the point of sensation, if you're crossing your legs or your arms, you're not going to, it's not going to be as easy as if you just put your hand on your heart and you really concentrate on your heart center. So I loved that because I thought, okay, good. Now, now I know somebody else is doing it. It's not just me making this up and thinking it works. It actually does work. It actually does bring it in. And it does help to help people to calm down. And that, as you said, is the first of the five C's to getting where you want to be. Right, so I just want to add a little bit here. Um, The researchers know that oxytocin is the direct and immediate antidote to cortisol. So when we have a stress response and we're revving up and going into fight, flight, freeze, when we can think of someone we're safe with and the fastest way to activate oxytocin is through touch, through safe touch. So some teachers now, even the mindfulness meditation teachers now, are teaching when you become aware of a moment of suffering, you just put your hand on your cheek and go, oh, sweetheart. Mm-hmm. And that activates the release of oxytocin. There's been research done now in Richie Davidson's lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where they put women in a scanner, and the women were told that they were going to receive a slight unpleasant electric shock on their ankles. So they measured the levels of cortisol, measuring the anxiety before the shock and then the level of pain during the shock. When the women were alone in the scanner, they reported the most anxiety and the most sense of pain. Mm-hmm. When they were holding the hand of the lab technician, there was less anxiety and less pain. When they were holding the hand of their husband, there was no anxiety and there was not no pain, but there was a pleasant feeling because they were connected to their husband. So we know when we activate the release of oxytocin, it not only calms down the cortisol, but it even can preempt it from being released in the first place. That is fascinating. I would not want to have been one of those women in the study, but God bless them for doing it. Exactly. (laughs) Somebody's got to do it, I guess. But that is fascinating because I think sometimes our anticipation is worse than whatever it is that's coming. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We do so that to ourselves, right? Right. And so what we've been talking about here is using compassion immediately mm-hmm. to activate the oxytocin. And I'm going to pull in the research here of Paul Gilbert, who's in the U.K., saying that we have three emotion regulation systems in the brain. They're all in the midbrain, so they're all unconscious. We have the fight-flight-freeze system that operates in response to a threat, and that operates on cortisol. We have a dopamine system, which is the system of pleasure and reward. It's what we get when we have a sense of achievement or accomplishment. And that can calm down our nervous system, but it can also lead to a sense of competition and comparison. So sometimes it leads to a sense of failure or shame or depression. And then there's the caregiving system, which is run by oxytocin. And when we do the self-compassion practices, ouch, this hurts, oh, sweetheart, What can I do right now to calm and soothe myself? We're activating our own caregiving system. We're calming down our own nervous system so that we can then be mindful, we can re-engage with the world, we can take effective action. 
So the compassion that we use to help calm ourselves down actually leads to the clarity we need to see what's going on and what do I need to do. You know what's funny about that is it's so inherent in new mothers. You pick up your baby when your baby is crying. You want to comfort that baby. It helps to, to you know, calm that baby down, just the closeness, the feeling, knowing that this is my mom. And when somebody else picks up the baby, the baby may continue to cry because the arms don't feel the same. It's not the same feeling. Mm-hmm. We know this inherently. We come in as babies knowing it because we do react differently to the different people that pick us up. And as moms, it's almost like, you know, you give birth and now you get this whole new sense of maternal instinct or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yet, from adult to adult, we don't necessarily think of it consciously. Well, you've touched on something very important now and foundational in the book, which is, of course, when mothers go through childbirth and if they do breastfeeding, they are releasing oxytocin in their brain. And so Mm -hmm. that helps with the maternal bonding. It helps activate the hardwired-in attachment caregiving system, and we all have that. So the experiences that we have in the first 18 months of age are what establish a lot of the patterns in our brain for coping. And I talk in the book about how our capacities for resilience can go awry. And a large part of it is when we have secure attachment with our caregivers, and that's true for about half of the population, then we have a sense of feeling safe, belonging, loved, and we just don't have the same stress response. But when we don't have that sense of secure attachment, if there's insecure or disorganized attachment, then we have to learn other strategies of coping, and that's where we tend to go in toward um, clinging to things or avoiding things or just going into confusion. And it's what Bonnie Badenoch has called, we go into neural swamp or neural cement, and and we either are our responses don't gel into things that are um, stable or they become too rigid and they're not flexible enough. And so a lot of the exercises that I offer in Bouncing Back help us correct for that neural swamp or that neural cement and actually come into a, a healthy sense of internal secure base within ourselves because we're able to take in the love and acceptance of other people. Hmm. It is just so fascinating. The whole the whole field here is just so fascinating. We're talking with Linda Graham, author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. And you can learn more about Linda by visiting her website at www.lindagraham, that's L-I-N-D-A-G-R-A-H-A-M dash, M as in Mary, F as in Frank, T, so that's mft.net, lindagraham-mft.net. Linda, so is it safe to say that you were interested in neuroscience prior to becoming an expert in resilience? <laughs> is, that, is that fair, or was it kind of like to get? <laughs> I, I still don't feel like I'm an expert in resilience. I know some things that are useful. What I do feel like I'm an expert at is integrating the tools that we now know will help the brain change in a good direction. And so in the book I talked about three processes of that brain change. There's conditioning, which is what the brain does. When we have an experience, we learn something new, it creates a new pathway in our brain, and so we're conditioning a new habit. And we can choose to condition habits that go in a more skillful or resilient direction. 
there's the deconditioning where we go into that sense of spaciousness and reverie and we now know that that's where so much imagination creativity intuition inside epiphany comes from so that's an important part of being able to see the situation differently or connect the dots in a different way and then there's reconditioning which is the most powerful tool we have where when we've had a difficult experience we have a negative memory of ourselves or of other people and we can consciously, intentionally pair that, we match up that memory with something that is more positive, that is stronger, more wholesome, and directly contradicts the initial memory. When we hold those two memories in our awareness at the same time, so the neural networks holding those memories together are lit up, they're activated, and we hold them in our awareness at the same time, when the positive, newer, more wholesome memory is stronger, it will rewire the second memory. You asked earlier if if we could change our brain immediately, and that Mm -hmm. is how we do it. You can let the newer, more positive memory completely rewire the older, less wholesome memory, and that can be immediate, and it is permanent. Now, do you find that these exercises and tools work for everyone, or are there some people that it just will not work on? Um, Well, certainly the brain is capable of changing, and we know that now from the beautiful work of Norman Doidge, the brain that changes itself. Even when there's organic and structural impairment, the brain can still change and compensate. So, yes, anyone can benefit. The difficulty is we need to be able to trust the process of bringing our experience to conscious, compassionate awareness and attention that often is helped by being in relationship with someone, a therapist or a spiritual teacher or even a good friend, that can help us do that containing. And we need to trust the process. One of the things, the phrase I love from Paul Gilbert, whom I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. he wrote the book The Compassionate Mind, he says, little and often. Do something little, but do it often. So we Uh don't have to do big, dramatic changes all at once. We do step by step, increment by increment, little by little, but do it often. It's the repetition, it's the perseverance that creates the change in the brain. So yes, people can change their own brains when they start out with something small or something simple, get a sense that it works, get a sense of confidence in themselves that it will work, and then try the next thing. You know, it's interesting because um, just that little, the, re- the repetition is so important. It's, it's, I think, akin to when you're learning, let's say, math as a child and it, you're using the flashcards, it's over and over and over again, and mm-hmm. that way you retain the information. But you said something interesting. You said even if it's organic, if there's an organic or structural impairment. Would you elaborate on that? Well, <clears throat> we're talking about the brain functioning to process information and experience so that we can have a response to it that is skillful, adaptable, flexible, healthy. We know that the development of the brain can go awry from neglect, abuse, trauma, and we're also learning that we can rebuild those structures of the brain through conscious effort and choice, almost like physical therapy for the brain. So one of the examples is the hippocampus, which is a structure that helps translate our experience into long-term memory. 
it comes online when we're about two and a half or three years of age, which is why we don't have very many memories, conscious memories. Before then, we have implicit unconscious memories, but the conscious memories start about two and a half or three years of age. If there's been neglect or abuse or trauma, the cortisol levels will damage cells in the hippocampus. They prevent new cells from growing. And the hippocampus is one of the most vulnerable areas in our brain. So people then, if they've had early stress, abuse, trauma, can have underdeveloped hippocampi. And we now know that we can strengthen the functioning of the hippocampus later through new experiences, new learning, new relationships, even exercise, which is a great way to get the brain to grow new nerve cells. Um, so we can rebuild a structure that was damaged early on. And then people improve their memory, but they also improve their functioning in general. And I'm glad you brought up through exercise because so many people think that when they're exercising, you know, either doing yoga or aerobics or strength training, they're only exercising that part of their body. They don't get that it's actually influencing their brains. Oh. They don't understand. You know, it's huge. <laughs> Let's talk it's a minute huge. about that. Yeah, yeah. That, that the brain is about 2% of our body weight and it uses 25% of the oxygen. So the brain requires a lot of oxygen. When we're doing exercise, we're not only building our muscles, but we're sending oxygen to the brain. It's absolutely essential. We're also helping the brain release endorphins, which mm -hmm. help us feel better so we're more likely to not only exercise more, but just approach our life with a sense of approach rather than avoid. But I recently learned from Kelly McGonigal at Stanford that aerobic exercise, enough to make you break a sweat, stresses your brain just enough that it releases brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF. It makes your brain grow new brain cells. And so when we exercise, we're actually pushing our brain a bit to develop mm -hmm. brain cells, and then we can use that for our more resilient functioning. And it's funny because I hear people saying all the time, well, I read, that's strengthening my brain. I say, no, it's not the same thing. You don't get it. Don't you feel better when you come out of yoga? And they say, well, yeah, but that's because at the end you go into Shavasana. And I'm like, no, that's not why. <laughs> it's not because you are laying there. You could lay all day and you wouldn't feel the same way. It's the release of the endorphins. It's the fact that you feel good. You're almost high sometimes because of it. And then people will say to me, well, that's because of you. You, you, know, you sweat when you're doing yoga. We're just in there doing it. And I think, no, you're still getting it because you're in a better mood when you leave than when you arrived. And somehow they're just not getting it. So I'm really glad that you touched on that. I think that's important for people to understand because it's not, it's not that you have to read more. I mean, that's great for your IQ, but it's not necessarily doing what everything else does. So thank you for that. <laughs> okay, so let me comment on that. I do have a, one entire section in the book mm -hmm. on building somatic intelligence because we actually develop and build our brain from the bottom up. That's how it happens developmentally. It's how we can access change lifelong so that when we have body-based changes that change our physiological state, we are actually changing how the brain functions and we're changing brain structure. When we read, and I love to read, but mm -hmm. often when we're reading, we're assimilating new information. We already have compartments and categories and file boxes, and we're taking in new information and putting it in the same categories. When we have different experiences, and that very often will happen through our bodies or through relationships, 
when we have new experiences, we have to accommodate new information. We have to change the categories. We have to change the file boxes that we put it in. And that is what is requiring the brain to grow, is to develop those new categories. It's one of the reasons they have found that music is one of the most integrative things that we can do because it pulls on many, many different structures of the brain, more than reading does. And uh-huh. so mu- music has a very integrative function in the brain. While you're talking about yoga, I also just wanted to mention laughing yoga. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's been so much research done now on laughter, which is actually not an emotion. It's It's a biophysical mechanism in our bodies that changes our physiological state. When we laugh, we change our physiology. And so now there's laughing yoga clubs where you can do the laughing together, and you do get that kind of high because you've changed your own physiology and you're doing it in community, and so you're getting the emotional contagion of other people laughing as well. And, yes, it improves our mood because it has changed our brain. It's interesting because, you know, for years, years and years, people said, well, laughter is the best medicine, and that's Mm -hmm. so true. They knew something, but they didn't really know the science completely behind it, but they knew there was something going on with that, you know, and it's very, very interesting to to finally see that science is catching up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's, that's the thing about neuroscience. I mean, I've been studying it for about 10 years, and so much is emerging. There's new articles every day, really, um, about how the brain works. Um, but a lot of the usefulness of the neuroscience is it's confirming what is common sense. It is confirming how we know we change. And the reason I like to teach the neuroscience to my clients and to my students is that when they know how the brain works, they can take their troubles a little bit less personally because we all have the same biology. We're all hardwired the same way. They take their troubles a little less personally, and they learn how to work with the brain. They get a sense of competence and confidence about it. And then they're much more willing to try the exercises or try the practices. If you know how laughter or yoga or exercise changes your brain, you're probably much more willing to do it, and then you get the benefit from it. Yeah, I agree with you because when I do concerts, I talk about the science behind cymatics and and I explain to them physical sound on matter and the quantum physics aspect of it in a very short and concise way so they can understand and realize that, oh, okay, this does work because Mm -hmm. it does. I've seen too many things. So it's interesting. In your book, you know, I read a book a week for this show and I read a lot of different books and I've read a lot of books about coping. But your book is, I don't know, it's different from other books on on how to do coping, and I think it might be because of the way that you explain things and because your sense of passion truly does come through in your writing. Is What do you feel is the difference between your book and other books on coping? And I'm not trying to put it into, pigeonhole it into a category. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, from what I've read and everything, it is very, very different. How do you feel it's different? Um, well, what I say in the book is that many self-help books presume the level of brain functioning that I'm trying to help readers rebuild through bouncing back. So we're lit- literally rebuilding the functioning of the brain from the bottom up so that when we know how to work more with the brainstem or with the limbic system, and then we get into the prefrontal cortex and all the rest of the magnificence of our higher brain, We're building resources from the bottom up so that we know how to go into a physiological calm and we know how to go into an emotional sense of acceptance and we know how to use the resources of healthy, safe relationships 
so that when we're thinking and when we're choosing, there's a platform there to do it in a healthy, wholesome direction. Mm. And that comes through clearly in your book that all of this does. uh, You know, it's from soup to nuts, if you will, that you do explain it so well and you do provide exercises that you teach in your uh, your work as part of a person's treatment. You Mm -hmm. said that earlier. Um, You know, so... what I, I'm sorry, what I also do say to people who are doing the exercises, it helps to do them in the order that I presented them in the book mm-hmm. because we're doing it from the bottom up, but also to to do every exercise with a sense of experiment. That's already rewiring the brain for resilience. To say, I'll try this. I'll see if it works. If it doesn't work, I'll try something else. There's no fault. There's no shame. There's no blame. I'm just experimenting. I'm curious. I'm interested. I'm learning. And that already moves the brain toward more resilience, to treat everything with a sense of experiment. Because some people, depending on our conditioning, depending on our experiences, depending on our belief systems and our culture, some people will resonate with some of these practices more than others. So you do what works for you for where you are. Sure, and people's, if two people can have the exact same experience and and they actually experience it differently. In other words, you know, two people can have gone through the same situation and come out totally different from the situation, experiencing it in a totally different way. So the exercises that they do are going to affect them differently. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely fair to say. And what you're saying is when we have an experience our brain may process that experience differently than somebody else's brain processes it, depending on the pathways we've already created. And as you go through a process like rewiring your brain for resilience, you will begin to process experiences differently than you did before because you're changing your brain, and your brain will process the, the same experience differently. It's interesting. The other day I was watching the news and they showed a, I think it was in Texas, a woman's car. Uh, she was going, the truck in front of her was going under a bridge and he was too low for the, too high for the bridge. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, he smashed into the bridge and she smashed into the back of him. And for some reason, in a nanosecond, she moved over to the passenger seat and that's what saved her life. Exactly. And they showed a picture of her moments after somebody was there. You know, well, everybody has a camera now with their magic phone. So somebody was doing the whole video thing, and they showed a picture. And she, she stood outside, and she was laughing at her car. And I thought, oh, my God, this woman's either in shock or she's really, really, you know, like, wow, that was cool that, was cool that I did that. Thank you, God. And she mm-hmm. just, I, the resilience was there. It was, she, I just thought, oh, my God, she's just laughing. She took it so differently than someone else. Exactly. And and I I tell the story Um, of a client of mine who was driving down the freeway, rainy, roads were slick, it was dark, her left front tire caught the shoulder of the road, so she was off on the shoulder. She swerved and crossed four lanes of freeway traffic and stopped on the other side of the freeway. Nothing happened. No one was hit. No one was hurt. And she was completely okay because she had touched base with her partner before she left. She was in her oxytocin bath, and it Uh prevented her body from going into the stress response. There was no trauma at all. And so when we have these ways of coping resiliently, it's the best buffer we have against the impact of stress or trauma on our body and on our brain. And the story you just told about that woman in Texas is a beautiful example of that. 
It, you know, it was funny. I was reading your book at the time, and I knew exactly what was going on. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. She she doesn't even need to read the book, but maybe she should because she, you know, maybe she already has. I thought that is just unbelievable. You know, sometimes we we see things that relate to something we're doing, and it just kind of cements it in for you in that way, so you get it more. Maybe I needed to understand something more. You know, I just thought, mm-hmm. wow, that's just crazy good that that woman did that. So now, what do you feel is next on the frontier of neuroscience? Um, what do you hope is next? <laughs> <laughs> what I hope is next on the frontier of neuroscience is being able to understand how many of the practices that we do actually affect the brain more. As the neuroscience gets more refined and specific and can see more in real time what's happening in the brain. So, for instance, we do know about the effect of oxytocin in the brain and in the body, but because the mechanisms for mapping the brain are so slow compared to what happens in the brain, they can't exactly follow an oxytocin molecule through the system yet and see how it has the impact. So as the technology refines and we're more able to see, they know that, for instance, compassion practice has created what they call a left shift in the brain, more neurons fire in the left hemisphere of the brain than in the right with someone who's done a lot of compassion practice. The reason that's important is the left hemisphere tends to carry a more approach stance toward our experience, and the right hemisphere tends to carry a more avoid or withdraw stance. So when we do a positive practice like compassion and we activate more of the approach stance in the left hemisphere, we're more likely to engage in the world rather than withdraw from it. But to be able to see more accurately how that actually happens in the brain so that, again, we get that reinforcement to do those practices more. You know, there's so much that's changing in science, and it's so quick now. Mm-hmm. We've really come a long way. I, I would think that, you know, in the next few years, there's going to be so much more that we just don't know right now that we probably can't even fathom. Mm-hmm. And, and now that I'm thinking of it, um, a lot of... What I love studying was from Dan Siegel, who developed the field of interpersonal neurobiology and really studying how one brain affects the other, which is what's really true. It's it's how we develop our brains in the first place growing up and the interactions with our parents and other people around us, and it's how we change our brains lifelong. So when a neuroscientist can study not just what happens in an individual brain, but what happens in brains interacting with each other, because that's what happens in therapy, that's what happens in a good friendship, it's what happens in a healthy family, then I think we can understand better how to choose the experiences that will actually change our brain in a good direction. So that's interpersonal. Do you think that, I mean, as an individual, sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, they're so left-brained or they're so right-brained. Do you think that through practice one could become more evenly distributed? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Now, one of the things that we, the what integrates left brain and right brain functioning is the corpus callosum. It's a band of fibers that goes right down the center of the two hemispheres of the brain. We do know that that tends to be thicker in women than men, just biologically, which may account for how women can sometimes integrate their feelings with their thoughts more. But one of the things that strengthens the functioning of that corpus callosum is mindfulness practice. So the more we're paying attention to our experience, whether that's with our thoughts or with our feelings, the more we're paying attention to it, the more we're strengthening the structures of the brain that can do the integration. 
when we do mindfulness practice, we're strengthening the functioning of the anterior cingulate cortex, which is what allows us to focus attention. It's also what allows us to distinguish physical and emotional pain. So when we strengthen those structures through mindfulness, through paying attention to our experience, we're also strengthening the integration of those structures. So we'll actually have more integration between our left brain thinking and our right brain feeling. And I think that's going to become um, more more to the forefront because we see I see have seen over the past I don't know ten to fifteen years a lot more people coming to yoga who you just would not have thought would mm-hmm. even give it a second chance you know mm-hmm. attorneys financial planners men lots of men and mm-hmm. that just wasn't the I mean that's how it started yoga started with men then all of a sudden it became a female thing to do and now it's going back and because of that the mindfulness that you need to do the postures and at the end I mean you know the goal of yoga is to meditate so mm-hmm. at the end to do that it, you can't help but bring that into the other areas of your life you just can't right well I'll tell you my yoga story which is not in the book I don't believe but um I was walking down the street one day carrying my goddaughter, who at the time was five. And so I was carrying her walking down the street, and I tripped on something on the sidewalk. And I fell forward, but I didn't lose my balance. I caught my balance, and so we weren't hurt. And the next day I told my yoga teacher about that, and she said, See, yoga isn't Mm -hmm. just for fitness, it's for life. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That was really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, though. My yoga instructor is always saying how you are in on your mat is how you are in life. And Absolutely. it's true. If you go often enough, you will. I've seen people change. I've seen them change from, like, did you know you could snap a, a yoga mat? You can. People come in upset. They're road rage, and they snap the mat, and I think, wow, this is yoga. You know, <laughs> you don't have to snap your mat. But mm-hmm. I didn't know you could do it, but you can. I learned that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I thought, wow. But then they change, and they come to class, and they roll it out because they know how much good they're getting, and their life is changing because of it, because of what they're learning. So all of these things that are coming about right now, the old exercises to do, coupled with the science that's proving what was done years and years ago, eons ago, is now, you know, proving that it really does work. It's just fascinating. And I really think you did such a fabulous job putting it all together in your book in an easy-to-understand way. Like I said, I read a lot of books, and some of them are very academic. And, you know, that's not what yours is. There, You learn a lot. It's educational, but I wouldn't call it a textbook. And I I wanted to, I'm sorry. I wanted to write a book for regular people who are going through their yeah. regular lives. And one of my phrases that has always informed what I do and teach is conscious, compassionate connection. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. And when we can do conscious, compassionate connection, we're rewiring our brain by doing that, and it's going to lead to more resilience. Well, you did it successfully, I have to say. You know, I really think you did a great job with your book. And unfortunately, we're almost at the top of the hour, Linda. But before we say goodbye, if you would please tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and your work and how and where they may purchase your book, Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. Thank you. You already announced the web address, which (laughs) is Linda Graham, hyphen M as in Mary, F as in Frank, T as in Tom. Dot net, And that has the archive of all the newsletters and resources, many of the exercises. It has my calendar of where I'm doing trainings. It has clinical talks and Dharma talks that I've given. So there's a lot more material on the website than we could squeeze into the book. And in terms of getting the book, I really encourage people to get it at their local independent bookstore. 
Of course you can order the book online, and people do, but I'm recommending people go to their bookstore and have a chat with their bookseller and find my book and other books as well. And thank you for that because I too believe in let's keep the you know the people in the community buy locally and and do that. If you can't get it, then yes, you can go somewhere else. But usually your local bookstore, I've done this with many books. You go in and they'll have it in two days, two or three days, which is when you'd get it from you know a source that you had to order online. But you're not paying the shipping, so you know. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to it's nice to interact with the people in the local community. So right. listeners, we need you to spread the word. If you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, share it with your friends. Send the link to the show so that they can be made aware of all the wonderful things that are offered on this show. Each and every one of my guests share their time freely. They give us a minimum of 60 minutes of their day to help us all. And as you're all aware, they do it at no charge. You pay nothing for the wisdom and knowledge that you receive here at Energy Awareness Radio from all of these wonderful guests who share their time and expertise with us. So please be sure to pass the word, make others aware, share it with your friends and family so they too will be able to grow and learn and make this world better for everyone. Linda, again, thank you so much for sharing your time with all of us. It's really been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, T. It's been my privilege. Oh, thank you. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern time for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. So go ahead and mark your calendar now so you remember to tune in next week. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. That's quantumwellness.org. You'll find an archived list of past shows, the lineup for uh, upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events and all the Crystal Bowl concerts that will be hosting throughout the year. And that changes frequently, so make sure you check that out. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T. Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well.
It's not a handy 